If you have not been in our service, we are walking through the Gospel of Mark. We are calling it Following the King to the Cross. And this week we are on a famous passage where Jesus calms the storm. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41. I will read it. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help now as we go to your holy and precious word. And we ask that as uh, those who believe in this room, those who already trust that you are king, that you are our savior. But we also ask on behalf of those who may not believe or they are unsure about what the scriptures say and who you are, whether you exist or not. We ask for your help. We all need it. And that is because apart from your grace and your love, we are nothing. Apart from your help, we cannot see, we cannot feel, we cannot know. And so we ask by your Holy Spirit to help us. We do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this passage is all about storms, and so I decided that I would read a bunch of stories, real-life stories of people who got stranded at sea, survival at sea stories. For example, fisherman Jose Salvador had been stranded in the Pacific, listen to this, for more than a year when he returned to his home in El Salvador in February 2014. Or another one. What should have been a simple fishing trip became a desperate two-month test of endurance for Louis Jordan, who was rescued off the U.S. coast in March 2015. He was spotted sitting on an upturned hull of a stricken sailboat about 320 kilometers off of North Carolina. Okay, last one. This last one was actually made into a movie recently. A woman named Tammy Ashcraft was 23, or 23 years old when she and her fiancé, Richard Sharp, set sail from Tahiti to deliver the Hansa, that was their boat, to San Diego. But nearly three weeks into the journey, disaster struck. Hurricane Raymond changed course, and the couple tried to run north of the powerful Category 4 storm. He sent his fiancée below as the storm overtook them, but then an enormous wave overturned the boat. He was thrown into the sea, never to be seen again. Despite her grief, she suffered. She survived 41 days at sea and sailed 1,500 miles to Hawaii, just using the sun and the stars to guide her. Now listen to this. This is what she said. When asked if she still sails, she replied, 
enthusiastically, yeah, yeah, I still love to sail. Now let me give you some wisdom here. Wisdom from on high. If you don't want to get lost at sea, don't get into a boat. I hate boats. Boats are tiny, feeble. They can't do anything, especially compared to oceans that are mean and angry and unpredictable. My answer to life's burden of sailing is don't sail. Don't sail in the sea because if it's, it's not if a storm will come. It is when a storm will come. Now, if only life were so simple. Because in truth, the world is a sea. The world is an ocean. The world is mean and angry and unpredictable. And we humans are tiny, weak, and helpless. And so there is no way to avoid the storms that come into our lives. We cannot avoid the physical and emotional and spiritual storms that blow forcefully into our lives and wreak all sorts of havoc. Now, I'm not going to get into a boat anytime soon, but I cannot avoid the storms of my life and neither can you. The Gospel of Mark is a slow unveiling, a revealing of the person work and purpose of Jesus Christ. We are learning who he is, what he is, and what he is here to do. And our account of the storm is the most dramatic so far in the Gospel of Mark. And it's a story of power, but also of faith. It is a story about what happens when storms come. Because friends, it is not if a storm will come to you. It is when they will come to you. What will you do? First point this morning. One, the power of the storm. The power over the storm. Mark 4.35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. So, of course, the disciples are on the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is a famous part of Israel. And it's a fascinating body of water because it's 21 kilometers by 13 kilometers. So it's quite large. It's quite big. And it's actually 200 meters below sea level, making it the lowest freshwater lake on planet Earth. Now, the Sea of Galilee was prone to these powerful storms because of the mountains that surrounded it and how it was so low underneath, how, how, how low it was compared to sea level. So, 30 miles to the east were these, were these big, uh, large mountains. And the winds, the, the pressure systems would come off of the mountains the cold air would come off of these mountains and it would clash with the warm air of the sea. And of course, when you bring systems like that together, powerful storms begin to form. And so that is what happened that day. Now listen, many of the men in this boat with Jesus were fishermen. They had lived their entire lives on the sea's banks and waters. And so they were, of course, used to storms. They could tell when they should not go out. They knew how to survive if they ever got caught unaware. And yet this day was different. It's always different with Jesus. 
because a storm unlike anything they had ever seen overtook their little boat. Mark 4.37, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. The Greek is very strong here. It describes the storm as something like a hurricane. A very mighty and forceful squall. And the fishermen immediately knew it. They knew they were in trouble. This was no ordinary storm. Unless something miraculous happened, they would not survive. They had no life vests. They had no rescue boat coming. If their boat overturned, they would die. And so what do they do? These experienced fishermen run to Jesus. They had seen him do amazing things. So maybe he could do something for them now. Maybe he could get them back to shore or at least help them to endure these ferocious winds. And when they find him in the back of the boat, he is sleeping. And so they cry to him for help. Wake up. No more nap time for you. And Jesus does something that they could could not have predicted, not in a million years Jesus stops the storm with his words. Mark 4.39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. How much energy does a windstorm like this create? How much does it produce? Of course, we can't know how much energy this particular storm released. How much was in that storm itself? But scientists believe, let's give an example, that an average hurricane, not like a crazy big one, just an average hurricane produces an incredible amount of energy per day. Here's the math. An average hurricane produces 6 times 10 to the 14th power of watts of energy per day. To put that in perspective, that is equivalent to about 200 times the total electrical generating capacity on the planet. NASA has calculated that during its life cycle, a hurricane can expend as much energy as 10,000 nuclear bombs. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Jesus speaks to this storm as though it were a child. And this child, this storm, behaves instantly. I can't get my children to come to me. If anyone has children, you know this. Hey, come here. Why? (laughs) Come here. What do you need? Come here. Here. Jesus does not pray first. He does not do what Elijah did and call out to God to rain fire down on the altar. Jesus simply speaks and the storm stops. And it's not just that the wind stops. The text says that the waters calmed too. A dead calm. The water was glass. It was as though the storm had never happened. And we, just like the disciples, are left wondering, who is this man? Now, at the very least, this is a guy who has power unlike any other, far beyond the power to heal or the power to cast out demons. Jesus has the power over a hurricane, the power beyond 10,000 nuclear bombs. This is not just another power source in the universe. What the disciples are seeing and experiencing is divine 
power, the power that had been used to create all things and hold all things together. Just imagine it on that little boat in the middle of the sea. It's Jesus. And he is power itself. Now we can react to this story in one of two ways. We can take it figuratively. We can say that the calming of the storm never really happened. That it's a nice story meant to teach us a lesson or two. And that Jesus is not really who he says he is. Maybe that God is not even real. And if that's true, the implication is that we must go through this life believing that we are not subordinate to a mighty God, that we are subjected to, subordinate to an impersonal universe whose storms rage without reason or mercy. Or we can take this literally. We can take this literally, that this really happened. And we can begin to feel the weight of what Jesus is telling us. That he is both infinite power and infinite love. He is both infinite strength and also infinite kindness. That is why he is in that boat. Not to terrify and to take, but to hearten and give, to hold and to save. And so if Jesus is power and love... Friends, we will not be satisfied until we have him. We will not find peace until we trust him. Have you given your life completely to this power? Second point, the purpose in the storm. The purpose in the storm. Look at Mark 4.38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing. So again, the disciples know what? They know that they're going to die unless something happens. Unless something miraculous happens, they are going to overturn that boat and they are not going to survive. They will go under the water and never come up again. And so they rightly turn to Jesus. They run to him. And their fear, if you think about it, is entirely human. They are fearful. And what rises up in their hearts is what every person asks at some point in their life. Do you not care? God, do you not care that we are perishing? A few years ago, Hurricane Florence devastated North and South Carolina. As one family hunkered down in their home, their little five-year-old boy looked up at the father and said, Daddy, where is God in the hurricane?" That's a good question. In other words, he was asking, if God is real, if he is all-powerful and all-loving, then where is he in this hurricane or in other hurricanes or our own hurricanes? When the storms of life bear down on us, does he care? When we lose our jobs, when our marriages fall apart, when our kids get sick, struggle in school, when the church, when Christians treat us poorly, when we experience ongoing pain, when our spouses get cancer, when we become addicted, when a loved one dies, when the devil seems to have free reign to do what he wants to us, when the storms of life come, we cry out, where is God? Does he care about my storm? Will he save me? 
Now we can actually find part of the answer in the fear of the disciples. Does God care? Let's look at the fear of the disciples. We know, of course, that the disciples were afraid because of this storm. It was going to kill them. But then they go to Jesus. They go to him in the back of the boat. They go to him and they realize that Jesus is not who he says he is or he is who he says he is. He's able to stop the storms of the simple command. And so their fear then, what happens? It turns to terror. So they are fearful of the waters, the raging water. They're going to die. But then Jesus stops everything. He stops the winds. He stops the raging waters. And their fear turns in to terror. Mark 4.41 says this, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The NIV version says that they were terrified. The King James Version said they feared exceedingly. Now, of course, they feared Jesus' power. Jesus does not only have the power to heal and cast out demons, he has the divine power to control the weather. And so the disciples realize at some level that they are in a boat with God, and that is scary. But I don't think that they are just afraid of his power. I want you to listen very closely right now. I think this is the heart of the sermon. The disciples are not just afraid of Jesus' power. They are afraid of what it means to follow him. They are terrified of the life he has called them to. And that is because Jesus demands that they have faith inside the storm. Jesus demands that they have faith when the storms come. Mark 4.40 says this. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, I had always read this story growing up as a display of Jesus' power. It's here so that we can see that Jesus is not just another guy, but God himself. And that's true. But we must see his power and love juxtaposed with the disciples' response. Jesus looks at them. And what does he say? He says, essentially, you failed the test. You failed the test. You failed to trust my power and my love. You failed to trust me inside the craziest storm you've ever seen. So what is Jesus saying? He is saying that he will not promise that storms will never come. He promises that he will be with us in them. Corrie ten Boom, a Dutch Christian who was imprisoned for helping Jews escape the Nazis, coined the famous phrase, the safest place is in the center of God's will. The safest place is in the center of God's will. But here's what she did not mean. She did not mean if you trust God, he will never let you physically suffer. She did not mean that if you have faith, you will never experience suffering and hardship. On the contrary, she knew firsthand storms would come. She said that phrase as she was herself facing unimaginable suffering. A missionary from Cambodia relates this phrase to his life. He said this, Serving God in the slums didn't earn me protection from cancer, the death of my friends and neighbors, betrayal, robberies, or any of the other struggles we have faced. 
In fact, we likely faced more of those things because of where we followed Jesus. Perhaps it's time we realize that the safest place, physically speaking, is not in the center of God's will. The center of God's will may, in fact, be one of the wildest, most dangerous places you could imagine. If that is true, then how do you trust? How can we trust Jesus? Why should we trust Jesus? And the answer is that our suffering, our storms, will never be without purpose. Our suffering, we are told, will always lead to the growth of faith and love. In our suffering, in our storms, we know that Jesus will be with us. He will comfort us, love us, and in the end, he will save us. Elizabeth Elliot lost her husband, Jim Elliot, as he tried to bring the gospel to an unreached tribe in Ecuador back in the 60s. They killed him and his friends with spears. Now, most people would that, at that point would leave and go back to their families, but Elizabeth was undaunted. She continued to reach out to this tribe and eventually made contact with them. She moved in with them, learned their language, shared the gospel with her daughter in tow. That's the picture right there of them. She said the leader at this time was unimaginably painful for her, but she did not despair. She trusted the Lord inside her storm. This is how she put it. My faith is to rest not in the outcome I think God should work out for me. My faith rests in the God who is. The quietness of my heart is the fruit of an absolute confidence in God. Hear that again. The quietness of my heart is the fruit of an absolute confidence in God. On earth, that is what we are doing. We are building that confidence in the Lord. Friends, following Jesus is not easy. It is not safe. But it will be good when you trust him. Last point, the promise of the storm. The promise of the storm. One of the most amazing things about the Bible, especially the Gospels, is how real they are. And by real, I mean that we get to see the disciples as they are. Of course, they're eager to learn from Jesus. They want to get to him. But they also come across pretty badly. They come across as stubborn, doubtful, arrogant, dense. And if you think about it, that took guts. They're writing these stories about themselves. Humans are so prideful that we often avoid revealing our mistakes and sins. We don't usually see on Facebook people confessing their sins every day. And so when we do see it though, when we do confess, usually it means there is at least a little bit of truth to it. The only reason the disciples would have written about their failure is as if their failure really happened. They were really in the boat. They really did experience that storm. They really did feel immense, unbridled fear. They really did not trust Jesus. All that to say that we can relate to them. If you ask yourself, what would I have done in that moment? 
Would I have had perfect peace and serenity while the waves crashed into the boat? Would I have had perfect faith while the winds whipped around and the boat sank? I won't answer for you. I can answer for me. I think that I would have been more freaked out than any of them. Why do you not have faith? That is not just a challenge. It is not just a rebuke. It is a summons. It is a calling. Jesus calls us to deeper and deeper faith. Three simple things. First, how do you gain faith? First, understand that what matters is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. In other words, you are learning to not rely on yourself and who you are and how good you are, but on your Savior. Say you're going to the sea. You are going to, do, to the sea to do some fishing and you have two boats to pick from. You look at one and you look at the other one and you are pretty sure, you're pretty convinced that one of them is going to be more seaworthy than the other one. So you take this one that you believe in, but then you get out into the ocean and what happens? It sinks. But you had faith that the boat would stay up, that it wouldn't have a hole in it, that it wouldn't get overtaken by the waves. Your faith was wrong, even though it was strong. The object of our faith is far more important than the strength of our faith. In some ways, this is the ultimate question of life. Who can I put my faith in? Jesus says it is him. Have faith in him. Second, we get faith by experiencing a faithful God. We get, a, we get faith by experiencing a faithful God. A man told a story about he and an older Christian friend of his were facing a challenging situation together. This older Christian had far more peace about this thing that they were experiencing together. And he told this other Christian, he says, you have more faith than I do. And the man responded, no, I just have more experience with a faithful God. We must reflect on our lives and see where God has been faithful. Friends, he has been faithful your whole life. Look back over your story. And see not heartache and suffering. See not promotions and successes. See where God has been faithful to you. Where he's been kind to you. Where he has loved you. Where he ha how he has been to you. And be patient to know that God is growing our faith. As we learn about his character and power and love, he is growing us. Third, faith comes from believing the storm. Believing the truth of the storm. Maybe you notice that the story is very similar to another story in the Bible. Another story with a boat and a storm and a sleeping passenger. The story of Jonah. These two accounts parallel each other almost at every point. In each account, both Jonah and Jesus were on a boat. And in each account, a great storm came upon their vessel. In each account, both Jonah and Jesus were asleep as the storm tossed them about. In each account, the other people in the boat go to Jonah and Jesus for help. In each account, the storm miraculously stops and the waters calm. And in each account, the people in the boat end up more terrified than when they started. Now, there is one main difference, though. One main difference. In the account of Jonah, 
He is thrown from the sea, for thrown from the boat into the sea, and he's swallowed up by some sort of fish, probably a whale. That's what stops the storm. But Jesus, Jesus stays on the boat, and he stops the storm with his words. So you could say maybe these stories aren't connected at all, until you understand that the story of this man in our story, Jesus, it actually does not end here on the boat. What we know is that another storm was coming. A storm that would make it clear that Jesus is Savior. The strangest detail in both of these stories is the sleeping. It's amazing. How could these men sleep in storms like that? For Jonah, I believe that he slept out of fear and disobedience. He did not want to think about what God had called him to do. So he slept to avoid it, to avoid his guilt, to avoid what God had called him to do. Jonah, you could say, slept in disobedience. But what about Jesus? Why did he sleep? It was not in disobedience. It was not running from God. He slept peacefully because Jesus was at the center of God's will. Where Jonah ran from God in his calling, Jesus ran to his father in his calling. And his calling, of course, was to be thrown out into the storm of storms, the storm that would lead to the calming of all waves, the storm that would lead to the calming of all winds, all rains, all lightning. It would calm the storms of our sin and disobedience and death. Jesus, Jonah was thrown into the storm for his sin. Jesus was thrown into the storm for ours. We learn later in uh, Mark chapter 15 and 16 that Jesus was, was crucified. He was crucified. And on the cross, he did not just endure in ter terrible, incredible physical pain, but unimaginable spiritual pain. On the cross, Jesus experienced the worst storm anyone had ever endured or would ever have to endure because he endured the wrath of his Father, the punishment we deserved for our sins and the curse of death. As the whale swallowed up Jonah, so Jesus was swallowed up by death. For us, in his infinite power and love, while we had no faith, while we were disobedient, Jesus died to save us. Why is that so, why is that so important to our suffering? Because storms are coming. They are coming. Until we are in heaven with him forever and ever, storms will come. So why does it matter that he died? Why does this help? How does it help us have faith? Because if Jesus would not abandon us in the worst storm but die for us, why would he abandon us in the smaller ones? Jesus died to save you from the storm of sin and evil and death. And so you can experience his joy and peace today. Whatever may come. And then he will come. One day Jesus will come. And he will finally bring us out of even the smaller storms Someday we'll be reunited with him for an eternity without death, without anxiety, without fractured relationships, without fear, without physical suffering. We will finally and happily live at the center of God and his will. Friends, the storms of life are coming. 
Or maybe for you, they are already here. Will you trust Jesus? Will you cling to him? He has given his life so that you will. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, we ask that you would be with us now. Help us to reflect now in the silence. May we hear your voice. May we do as you have asked. My only prayer right now, Lord, is that we would see Jesus, that we would see him, that we would know him not as a historical figure, but the alive, personal, intimate, and loving friend that we know that he is. Help us to know him and trust him. Help us to worship him. And help us to trust him. God, I pray for those who are in their storms right now, storms of grief or pain, anxiety. And they are clinging on. Help them cling. May they trust in Christ. For those who are going to encounter storms, storms that may feel like they uh, will lead to their death, be with them in strength and mercy and comfort. May they see Jesus and trust him. And God, I pray that for this church This church, I know, has gone through a season of storms. We believe that we have trusted you, not in all ways, imperfectly, but we have trusted you. And I'm sure more storms are coming. And so I would ask, Lord, that you would help us to trust Jesus together. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.